Welcome back to Life and Sport Podcast, everyone. And we're joined by another Olympic guest in our 2024 Summer Olympic Series. She competed in the 1984 Summer Olympics in Los Angeles. So anyone who may not know, there's also Los Angeles coming up in 2028. Her name is Margot Foster. Thank you very much for joining me. And how has your week been so far? Well, thanks for having me, CJ. And it's a bit early to tell, but so far so good. <laughs> That's good. That's always good to hear. Uh, obviously, um, your sport of choice when it came to the Olympics was rowing. And my first question for you is, what is your earliest memory of rowing? And, you know, how did you get into it? Well, I don't have any early memories of rowing. Um, it was not a sport that uh, was on my horizon, wasn't part of uh, my life growing up. And I came across it when I went to university and I was living at one of the residential colleges at Melbourne Uni. And um, a couple of years before I went, uh, in intercollegiate women's rowing had, had begun. And um, when I first went to college, I what I had previously done and that was swim and play tennis and finally I was dragooned into uh, going rowing I resisted and resisted and finally relented uh, when I was in in third year because rowing is pretty big in the college scene Uh, and was seriously duck to water stuff I just I loved it and um, so yes I spent the next 10 years uh, rowing um, the ball. Wow that's that's honestly so interesting because a lot of people, as I'm sure you know, especially nowadays, they're into whatever sport they compete in at the Olympics from a young age or, you know, early teens. But yourself, for lack of a term, a late bloomer. But as you also said, Dr. Water, as soon as you started it, it was this is what I'm meant to do when it comes to sport, which is incredible. Um, and obviously juggling the commitments of, you know, high level, um, you know, sport and also university was definitely not a it was not as easy it's definitely difficult these days still but it was definitely nowhere near as easy back then and if you don't mind me asking how did you manage the um you could say the the mix of both well when i was i, I was i did a five-year course law law arts at melbourne uni and i started in third year so for the first for the, my first three years of my rowing life um, was at uni and um, I'm happy to say that in my final year of uni I only had eight hours of lectures a week so I had plenty of time to do all sorts of stuff including rowing. So in those three years um, I rode InterVarsity, or I rode for the college and then InterVarsity and um, then I started uh, working in my articles here and that's when I hit the um, hit the big time, as it were, and getting selected in my first Victorian team. So I was working and then the um, intensity stepped up at the same time. And between 1981 and 1984, um, I think I worked out that with all the training and rowing and rowing camps and whatever, and particularly with the Olympic year, I spent about uh, one whole whole those for one of those four years not working um, wow. directly, but still. And then I, I added the pressure on because um, I also started my own legal practice uh, almost as soon as I finished articles for a whole lot of reasons. So I was running my own legal practice and rowing, um, which wow. was quite a fair bit of uh, organisation and discipline, but they both seemed to work, so the end result was good. Oh, absolutely. And obviously, as you said, you started your own law practice and um, 
you you, you would kind of need the same, if not very similar values when it comes to, you know, sacrifice, dedication, all those sort of, um, you know, in, uh, what's the word? Introspective sort of um, qualities yeah. that they sort of go hand in hand with high, high performance sport, as in at the top level, such as Olympics, as well as a law practice. So it kind of goes without saying that it was all, you know, even though it may it may have been hard at times, the juggle was a little bit easier in the sense of because you you know what it took to be at the top of one sort of level, and so yeah. you knew right. I can apply this into my into my law practice sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. So look, I was, I was lucky. After I finished college, I went back and lived at home, and uh, Mum was used to uh, you know looking after the three of us, all of whom played sport um, at various levels, and. Um, I also uh, I worked in town and was able to park my car down at the rowing sheds at uh, Princess Bridge, so I'd just walk, walk into town. And I, I had a very disciplined life. I'd go rowing in the morning, work all day, row, row at night and work, work uh, then go home. And um, what, what, what I became um, quite good at was compartmentalising. So when okay. I was rowing, I was rowing. When I was working, I was working. And that and they didn't and separation yeah. kept both fresh. So, you know, as I was walking down to the river after work or whatever, you know, I'd be thinking about the things that I needed to think about technique-wise or whatever. You and wouldn't be thinking about, you know, the day's work just gone sort of thing. No, I'd be, I'd be able to switch, and I think that that's been a really useful tool for me. So when I'm doing what I'm doing, I'm doing it. I'm not really worried about what I'm not doing. Yeah. Um, and so that's that stood me in quite good stead, I think, over the years. Uh, but as I say, I was very fortunate to have the circumstances all aligned, so it was um, it was very easy. But there was one stage in my uh, rowing life where I trained three times a day, and it just about did my head in. So my hats off to to all those athletes who have to train three times a day now. But I just oh, want to touch on, touch on what you said about um, sacrifice. Of course, I I. I really don't like thinking about what I did in terms of sacrifice because I made a choice. Oh, okay. I chose to go rowing. I chose to train 12 times a week. I chose to forego social activities and weekends away. And I remember I had a friend once uh, said, well, come on down to Flinders for the weekend. Um, they won't miss you. And I said, well, no, actually, you, know, you can't You can't not be in a rowing boat. It's not like a footy team if you don't yeah. And still play, you know. You can't row a boat with three women or seven or whatever. So uh, yeah, yeah. So as I say, I always, I always think about it as so I. So you could say you chose to sacrifice in that respect for the um, betterment of your progression. Yeah, for like but I never, I never, but I never thought of it as sacrifice. I always thought of it. I mean, I think that's a bit of a negative. Um, and I, I, I didn't have to go rowing. No one made me. No, gosh, no. Boat, so. I chose it and I chose all that went with it. Um, and That's a really good way of looking at it. Well, I think so. And I think I think probably, and, and it really does concern me when journalists talk about sacrifice, in, you know, an athlete's sacrifice. Well, yes, you've made a choice. And um, in some senses you could say, well, I for, I've foregone something rather than sacrificed it because possibly it'll be there later. No, that's actually a really good way to... To think of it and I've obviously myself I've not thought of it that way before but I will from this point on honestly think <laughs> about it in that way it's 
because it's really interesting because it is definitely all about perspective. What someone may see as sacrifice, the person themselves, such as yourself, see it as a choice. You know, yeah. it's, I, it's a, I want to do it, not a, I have to do it. If, yes. if you felt like you had to, then it would have been a sacrifice sort of thing. Yes, yes. And, you know, contrast my my background with, say, Elena Dokic, you know, and she she was made to play, I mean, she liked playing tennis, but she had a father sort of, you know, yeah. uh, figuratively and literally, you know, beating her so that uh, she would be the best. And, I, you know, reading her story is just horrifying. And oh, uh, I've read the story. It's yeah, it's given me goosebumps just thinking of, of the things that she went through. It's... I know. So, so... So for me, uh, you know, that puts that in stark release that every, you know, everything I did with rowing was a choice. I mean, I didn't have to go rowing. I could have stopped when I um, finished uni and said, look, I had a great time at inter-college and inter-varsity. Um, but no, I chose partly because I'm a fairly competitive beastie, but um, <laughs> I, I think everyone in sports is. Yeah. <laughs> Well, well, obviously, um, being that competitive spirit, you did end up, as I mentioned earlier, in the 1984 Olympics. What was it like getting, you know, finding out you qualified for the Olympics, getting into the team, heading over to LA, all and everything to do with the Olympics that year for yourself? Well, for me, it was, was, it was interesting in that I hadn't ever been selected in an Australian team before because I was, I was wow. old. I started when I was 18, 19, I think. Uh, yeah, I was 19, so uh, by the time I got any good, I was too old for the underage competition. So the Olympics was my my first international event. Um, it was very exciting being selected. It was very nerve-wracking because it's one thing to ring all the, win all the races. It's another then to go and do the ergo test and, you know, uh, just about die. Um, but being selected was was fantastic and such, such a... Uh, uh, so exciting, and then you know, that was just getting selected was just the beginning of the next, the whole next phase of training. Moving to Adelaide uh, to train with our coach, the coach was uh, living there. Um, we had two two of us from our Victorian crew and two from South Australian crew, so we were combined. And um, we had about three months between being selected and the Olympics. And that's sort of when you lock in, like really start honing in, like obviously meeting the other two from South Australia to be on the on the four, but also, you know, really honing in your craft to, you know, give yourself the best shot at the Olympics. Yes. Well, we didn't have any lead up regattas, which is sort of part of the course these days with World Cups and whatever. Um, and so we, um, the two of us from Victoria, so and I, we rode slightly differently from uh, Karen and Robin in South Australia. So we had to sort of combine our styles and techniques so that we were a fluid unit. Um, and our first test was actually at the Olympic Games um, in the heat. So we didn't know, have any clue about how we were going, what we, you know, how we performed until we lined up um, that morning. But it was really exciting. Wow. Um, we we flew, flew to LA, obviously, then our, we drove up to Santa Barbara where... Uh, um, because the rowing was sort of in the sort of early part of the desert in um, California, and we were billeted with a family there rather than staying in the athletes' village, which was a fair drive. Um, and yeah, we we trained and rowed, and um, uh, yeah, lined up for that that fateful heat. Yeah, which I mean, you made history in that 
in that Olympics by becoming the first women's rowing team to medal for Australia at the Olympics. Um, yeah. I'm just getting goose. I was thinking about it. I can imagine how you were feeling when you when you made that achievement. And if you can talk to us about, you know, obviously reliving it and also living, making history, not just for Australian sport, but women in sport as well. It's funny, you don't really think about those sorts of things at the time. And, in fact, our reaction when we crossed the line was anything but jubilant because... Um, like, shit, we should have uh, got cold. <laughs> <laughs> the, no, no, not, not, not that. It was oh. because um, the race was quite close and uh, the Romanian crew won and then it was close between... Um, and then Canada came second and that was fairly clear. And then um, it was close between us and the US. Oh, and okay. Being official in a speedboat, who you know, at the um, finish of the course, uh, driving around telling people, telling crews where they finished in the race, and uh, they came over to us and said, "Oh, you came fourth, Australia," and uh, so we were incredibly mm. dejected really furious and I know that I said to myself what a waste of time this has been coming forth so do you I think know- it was maybe when they said you'd come forth because it was hosted by the US that they had a, maybe a little bit of bias towards the US uh, that could be the case but it was close it was okay close. so they might have been at a wrong angle and not been a human error close. sort of thing okay yeah so it's human error and um so we were absolutely spitting chips and, you know, but, but I always say that, you know, so much of the Olympic spirit, <laughs> it's not, it's the winning, it's, it's not the winning, it's the taking part. And I said, no, absolutely. I mean, no, no, you go there to win. You do. Yeah. <laughs> so then um, we were all we were so cross. And after a race, uh, what crews do, they row up about 250 metres back up the course, wait for the next race to come down, then row into the medal presentation pontoons. And so we saying, oh, we're just going to row our boat in and put it away and not go, you know, do this row down. Anyway, we we would have done it. But anyway, we were saved from having to make that decision because uh, we were finally told that um, we'd come third. So uh, all of a sudden it was worthwhile. (laughs) But it was interesting because I saw I I was away last year and um, with some friends who wanted to see the race, so they pulled it up and had a look. And I honestly hadn't looked at it for you know, years and years and years, and it really was close. And we were in lane six down the bottom of the screen, and the American commentators on the on the feed said that the US had come third. And then they went to an ad break, um, and then they came back and said, "Oh no, Australia came third. <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> wow! So they got it wrong on the on the original call anyway. So uh, That's, yeah, wow." But that's really interesting because, um, yeah, like obviously back then technology is was not what it is these days in sport especially, but you'd think they'd maybe go back for a photo finish or zoom in and slow down even in the commentary to try and see, you know, if it's that close, who's, yeah. you know, end sort well, of. When, when, I was, when I saw the vision uh, last year, as I say, I mean, we, we were in lane six, so the bottom of the screen. Yeah, and they were the screen seemed to focus on the you know the top part of the race or you know from lane one to lane. I think the Americans were what were they in lane four and we were in lane six and there's someone else between us. So they were concentrating. The American broadcasters concentrating on the American crew. Yep, they would as the host broadcasters and technology, as you say, they didn't have a sufficiently wide screen or whatever. And you can just see us 
sneaking along the our bow ball, and you know the the bit of the bow of the boat sneaking along <laughs> on the bottom of the screen. So easily missed, obviously, but um, anyway, it all it all worked out in the end, and it was uh, lovely to come home with a medal, and of course to be um, you know the first women's crew. Women's rowing had only been in the Olympics since 1976. Um, Australia didn't send a crew then, but sent a crew in 1980 to Moscow. Uh, and those girls did a fantastic job. They they came fifth, uh, you know, the first Western nation behind, um, you know, all the Eastern Europeans. Uh, say no more on that, but they did a great job. So, so yes, yeah, so we, we, we um, were very pleased. And, you know, I think um, so many women did well in those Olympics and and um, previously, and I I always sort of slightly chafe when I think you know we're, we're besieged by uh, news that says women's sports finally come of age, um, whole other discussion. But you know women have been playing sport at the elite level and winning for a very long time. Absolutely, they have, and that's one of my. Um pet peeves for lack of a better term or pet hates is definitely when people or journalists or whomever tries to say that sort of thing of it's finally come of ages no have you guys not been watching the olympics for years not just team sports individual sports you know they've been smashing goals long for a long long time um and that actually brings up somewhat of a sensitive topic not necessarily with yourself but um to the greater but 1988, the Olympics, uh, you unfortunately missed out on those Olympics. And um, that's not from qualifying either, though, because as you were saying to me earlier, that you'd literally won all of the races and by all reasoning, qualified for the Olympics. But what happened, if you don't mind me asking? Well, um, yes, I'm sort of, we trained and, you know, after the um, Olympics, we'd been to the Commonwealth Games and done well there. And, and you got gold in the 86 Olympics. Yeah, uh, 86 Commonwealth Games, yes. And at this Sorry, very, yeah, come games, my bad. <laughs> and at this very moment, uh, I and my crew are the reigning champions because they haven't had rowing in the Olympics and the Commonwealth Games since, but that's a whole other story. Um, anyway, so we lined up. Undefeated. The, <laughs> undefeated forever, I think. For sure. <laughs> yeah. uh, so we lined up for selection in 1988, and as you said, I'd... Um, been successful in the races, the selection races that I'd needed to be successful in with my uh, uh, crew. And um, was uh, it the same crew from '84? No, no, oh, okay, different crew, different crew. Sue, Sue, and I were the, um, uh, you know, the continuing pair, but the, the others had had not continued. And well, certainly no, back in a Victorian crew. And um, uh, the the you know at the end of the final selection regatta, we everyone who was in contention assembled. We were at Penrith at the time, and uh, not in the new um, rowing centre, the but at the uh, by the banks of the Nepean. Yep. And um, uh, we were all summoned, and you know the selectors get up and read out a list of names, and there were no women's names on it, none at, at all. At, at all. None at all. And, and you just won gold in 86 at the Com Games, bronze in 84, and you got absolutely shafted by the sounds. Well, there was no correspondence entered into. We never got an explanation um, and there was nowhere to go because... That's even more annoying. Like, if they'd have tried to come up with some sort of cockamamie answer or, you know, <laughs> reasoning, I could somewhat live with that a bit more in the sense of, 
uh, like you know exactly what it was. Yeah, like we're not like we're not good enough. If if you know we had, if we're not good enough and didn't have a prospect of being good enough, well maybe. But you know we weren't if, even. If, if you didn't, you wouldn't have been at that stage for qualification either. Well, you know, there's usually other you know um, processes between being selected and then ending up going away yeah. with the team. So you know we weren't put through any other paces to see how good or bad we were. It was just sort of this wall of silence and. Um, so, Which was deafening, definitely yeah, by the sounds. But back in those days, there was no court of arbitration for sport, no dispute resolution processes available in sport for selection or, or other matters uh, to any extent. And so there are only two options, sort of suck it up or take it to court. And a couple of um, women decided to go to court, uh, which is a Supreme, wow. court, a Supreme court action and honestly, the Supreme Court is the last place you'd want to go for a, a selection decision, uh, just not not the right forum. So they, they you know, tried it but failed. Um, and so there was a big hole in Australian women's rowing after that because there was a big gap mm. between 1984, 86, and then the next Olympics in 1992, um, at which, uh, you know, uh, the women did well, but they're, all, all the people, all the women that I was rowing with who had aspirations going to the Olympics never got the chance. It was really a whole new cohort by the time we got to 1992. And I know that I learned so much from rowing with the women who went to the 1980 Olympics. And you learn, you learn a lot from the people who rowed before you who yeah. actually know what rowing hard is. Yeah, absolutely, because they've done it at the, you could say the, absolute top level and that's the olympics when it yeah. comes to that and, and, and you know there's, there's this thing that with rowing that you get it is well some there's this moment when you get what rowing hard is and yep. you, you need to you know it really helps if you're with people who know how to do it but um what, what was that moment for you if you don't don't mind me asking like when did that sort of i get it sort of thing happen i think it was actually i've never thought about that actually um <laughs> so <laughs> i think so uh, I wrote Sue, and then there was uh, Pam and Jackie, and um, and Pam and Jackie. Jackie been uh, Pam had been in the nineteen eighty crew, and Jackie yep. and I had rowed together at college. And Pam and Jackie were a fairly formidable um, uh, combination. And one day on the Yarra, we were just doing two hundred and fifty or five hundred meter pieces, dodging bridges, and um, uh, Sue and I, I think. Um, beat Pam and Jackie in, in their pair. And I think my coach said, my coach said, you finally rode hard. <laughs> I yeah. thought I'd always rode hard, but he said, no, you finally did because he could see it. Yeah, wow. Yeah. Well, that's that's really interesting to hear as well. And uh, on behalf of myself, obviously, it's I'm sorry that you definitely missed out on the 88 Olympics because you can only imagine that you could have, you know, gone one better, maybe got silver or gold sort of thing at, at the 88 Olympics. Um, yeah. 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 But look, I, look, yes, it was really disappointing, but I, at least I'd been, and as I said before, mm. um, you know, and I got two two medals out of two outings. Oh, I went Commonwealth. Also, Sue and I went to the World Championships, which wasn't so successful for a whole lot of other reasons. Um, but, you know, two big events, I got two medals. So I'm happy. And as I said That's before, two from two. Yeah, and I was, I, you know, really sad for the girls who just who just missed out. And what it did, you know, being this whole experience of that sliding door moment of being dragooned into going rowing when I was at college, 
and, um, you know, really finding it as my sport, then, you know, obviously you and I wouldn't be sitting here talking if I hadn't no. had that. And the same for so much else that's been um, bec uh, become available to me by virtue of, of those few years. So, you know, I, I have no regrets, perhaps a bit of disappointment about that. But, uh, no, it sort of set the stage for doing a whole lot of other things, which has been terrific. That's incredible. And one of my next, one of my topics on the list is um, actually about the, from the 84 Olympics to now a days, obviously this year's Olympics is um, the Paris Olympics and being a former Olympian yourself obviously begs the question, what are some of the things that you've noticed as progress for the betterment in general of the Olympics from when you competed in 84 right away, right through to now in 2024? Oh, the, for the betterment of the Olympics as a as a uh, an event. Yes. Yes. Um, look, I think uh, I think it's gone through sort of its ups and downs, and I think social media's had a lot to do with it. I mean, we didn't we didn't have back in our day any restrictions on what we could say to anybody about anything because no one was interested. <laughs> yeah. <fair laughs> you know, they'd have to seek us out. We couldn't just go tweeting or you know insting. Um, with our thoughts on topics. So I think that the, the Olympic movement, you know, management of athlete voices has been has been very interesting. I think the, you know, the, we were involved in the politics back in the 1980s with the Moscow, um, uh, the boycott in 1980 mm -hmm. and the reciprocal one in, in 1984. And I think the management of politics has probably not changed a lot and we're going to find out about that a bit um, this year with whatever happens to the Russians and the Belarusians. Um, yep. And, um, oh, look, I, I, it's much more glitzy. Um, there's much more support for athletes certainly here than there was in our day. We did, we got support based on um, you know, government support, not to the same extent that I do now, but um, was based on the previous year's athletes' performances. Um, I think the intensity has gone up. Um I'm not talking about the negatives rather than the positives, but um, no, these are all they're all part of the part and parcel of the events. Yeah, and I think that the idea of full-time athletes, you know, going back to what I said before about you know how I was able to have effectively balance, you know, I worked and I and I trained twelve times a week, um, and I think that balance has, has disappeared, and you know, so we now we have this whole other industry about you know helping athletes after their sporting careers. Um, and also probably the money has changed changed the uh, the dynamic as well but overall i think the olympics you know it's a it's a worldwide brand it's well recognized it's um it's about opportunity for both participants and uh, cities um whether it's become too big for itself uh, remains to be seen um with brisbane having its own little conniptions at the moment mm. um but overall, look, it's it's a force for good, and it's just great to even watch what's going on in Gangwon at the moment with the uh, uh, World Youth um, or the Olympic Youth Games. Yes, um, and the happy happy little athletes who are you know winning and hopefully aspiring to you know that biggest stage. Oh, absolutely! Um, and anyone who um, didn't know about that, you can check out the information on those Olympics currently going on for the youth. 
um, on Instagram is. I think the Oz Olympic team is posting about it on Instagram as well. Um, but that also tangents back into the social media side of things. Going back yeah. into a little bit for uh, 1988, your brother competed at the 1988 Olympics, um, making three members of your family Olympians, your father who competed in water polo, yourself in the rowing and your brother in the K2 kayak. Um, what was it like, you know, when for you yourself as a sibling being like, heck yeah, my brother made the Olympics sort of thing? Uh um, well, I was only glad that he, he got a bronze medal too and not a silver one or a gold one. <laughs> I couldn't have lived with that. <laughs> if that isn't the epitome of sibling rivalry, because I get that, absolutely. <laughs> uh, he, he, I mean, he probably wanted to do better than me, but anyway, it is as it is. So we both ended up with bronze medals, um, which was great. And, uh, yes, Dad, uh, Dad played water polo in 1952 and 1956. Um, and... After we, Peter and I had both been to the Olympics, Dad sort of started doing some inquiring of the um, AOC slash IOC, and we think we're probably, I don't know whether it's changed since, but certainly a while, 20 years ago or so, we were the only family um, with people in three different sports. Yeah, um, that, I didn't think normally, of that. Normally people follow in their parents' football. Yeah, like swimming and swimming or whatever and whatever. Mm-hmm. But that's three separate sports, three separate Wow. Yeah. Mm. I don't know how I didn't think of that before, but that's yeah, that's that's incredible. Yes, yeah, it is. All, also, all water-related as all well. Water yes, yes, that's right. So, you know, I suppose, um, yeah, you know, having a father who's an Olympian has an influence, um, and, you know, he was always there, and not that we talked about it very much, but, you know, he was always an Olympian, and so when it be sort of, came into view and my brother, he, he'd uh, always been a surf lifesaver ski paddler, so then he made that transition. But, um, you know, I came into rowing pole from no no um, like background at all. Yeah. Um, anyway, it all worked out well in the end. <laughs> that's, that's really interesting. It's such an interesting statistic as well. Um, obviously, when... It kind of kind of covers. Um, so we've kind of covered this, but it's a question I've got. Is obviously when you decided to retire from the sport, how was the transition for you for the first eighteen months? Well, I I didn't actually decide to retire because of that nineteen eighty eight. Oh, okay. It, it was eighty eight, was it? Well, so so you know, I I had I had had reasonable expectations um, that I would be selected in the in the 1988 team. And, I mean, let's be honest, no absolute reason why you wouldn't have been or shouldn't have been at least. No, there'd been nothing to indicate that, you know, I was wasting my time even sort of going through selections and things. And so I um, I then thought, oh, well, perhaps I can hang in till 1992. Yep. Um, but I, it became all too hard um, and... By that time, too, uh, I had begun, well, I still had my legal practice, so obviously that was taking up my time. Um, I'd put in all the hard yards for, you know, a good 10 years, and which is not long in the sporting life, but, it, you know, from the age that I started to finish was yeah. a good 10 years. I suppose my regret in hindsight was that it took me almost those entire 10 years to learn how to row properly, to absolutely sort of nail it, um, you know, because it's a highly technical sport. And um, so, you know, I was really pleased with that sort of reflection. Um, 
But I, I had been um, selected um, to be on the first AOC Athletes Commission. Oh, wow. Yeah, so, and I was the deputy chair of that. And so that was that was announced in um, uh, 1985, I think. So, so anyway, so, so you can stay on an Athletes Commission for eight years after you're selected. So I stayed until 1992, I think. Um, so that was that was sort of a start of things, and because um, you know I'm a lawyer type of person, boards and those sort of committees that always interested me, and I'd been on my bike club committee, and I'd been on the college my college uh, student committee. So what happened after um, 1988 was I, I I was appointed to a Victorian government committee. I became the Secretary General of Rowing Australia. Wow. Uh, I know. I ended up writing myself out of the Constitution but <laughs> because there was a paid person and me as a volunteer and it didn't work. But um, anyway, so I did that uh, at the end of the 1980s. And then I also then got um, appointed to Melbourne's um, 1996 Olympic Bid Committee. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, so I sort of... I had enough to do. I didn't actually retire. My retirement was sort of forced upon me. I didn't fight it. I had plenty to do because I'd always had that. If anything, you had too much to do. <laughs> well, yeah, plenty to do. Um, and so I, yeah, it was just, for me, it was really easy because I didn't actually retire and I wasn't left in this sort of um, wasteland of indecision because I'd already mm. made decisions about my career, my legal life. And then these other opportunities arose, which is sort of going back to what I said before about sliding door moments, that if I hadn't taken up rowing and then gone to the Olympics and then done well and whatever, then, um, you know, these other opportunities, you know, would never have occurred. And that continued um, and continues to a certain extent. So, yeah, for me it was it, it was it was easy. There was nothing. Yeah, nothing to... Absolutely. And I definitely... Um... Agree from what we've spoken about so far. Um, and you you touched on just before when I was asking about, you know, the differences and whatnot in these days compared to back in 84 and, and beforehand of, you know, you had a, a genuine healthy mix of work, study at the time as well, and, you know, sport. Whereas athletes these days, granted to be the best these days, you do have to dedicate every single waking moment. But that's where the they struggle after the 18 to 24 months of in retirement to transition back into but as you yourself said you found it a lot easier than say athletes of today because you had that mix like yeah. you know that that that, mm. that that comfortable mix going on during your life at that time and i was going somewhere with that and i genuinely cannot oh, remember well i, well, I, I can I, I can just fill in there go so, ahead yeah so the the failure to uh, get selected in 1988, um, and because well, it, because I had all these other things, it didn't mean that my my value was dependent on going to no. another Olympics in 1992. So that wasn't you know there's no imperative that that happened um, no. because I didn't have anything else to do. And my whole identity was caught up with being a rower, um, and I think that I, I mean I really I reflect on that too, and I think you know that was. That was good. Uh, you know, I don't want to be just be known as a rower. No, of course not. 
and mm. that's that's also an, um something a lot of athletes struggle with as well is coming to terms with who they are outside of their respective sport when they are looking to retire or yeah. and whatnot mm. um which is um very interesting my my next question to do with that sort of stuff is obviously we are in an an olympic year and yeah. so will you be watching or you know taking um notice of the 2024 olympics oh yeah of course <laughs> Oh yes, 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 yes. I I um I do enjoy an Olympic Games and um looking forward to the um spectacle of Paris. And I actually think um people people often ask me, I mean, am I going? Well, no. And I think it'll be uh, way better on the telly. You yeah, know, you see so many so many sports from. You great... see so much more on the TV. Yes, yes, yes. The last Olympics I went I went to London. Mm-hmm. Um, in 2012, which was terrific. I mean, because it was so easy just being in, um, you know, an English-speaking country and you know yeah. you're um, You know, amazing who you'd bump into on the train. And, um, uh, yeah, so, no, I'm really, I'm really looking forward to um, uh, watch, watching it all and uh, taking in, in all the great, great performances. And I do have a role with World Athletics and I was with, um, I was in Hungary, uh, in August uh, for the World mm-hmm. Championships. So, you know, in my my role, I met a few of the athletes. They wouldn't remember who I am, of course, but I met a few of them, so I'm a bit interested to see how some of them go as well, uh, including the Australians and who um, performed very well, as we know. Um, and, of course, the rowing and, you know, whatever other sport pops up other than probably soccer. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> not, not a fan of soccer? No, and, you know, having an under-23 competition doesn't quite, uh, you know, set me on fire. No, that's fair enough. Um, um, Please, we've come to the quick-fire questions uh, section now. Okay. I'm just double-checking double my notes. We have covered the family part of it. The um, Yeah, we've covered everything other than the quick-fire and the final few questions. So the quick-fire ones are fun questions just, you know, so people can get to know you know, Margot Foster, the person, not just Margot Foster, the athlete or, you know, lawyer. So quick fire. First one is Apple or Android? Apple. Absolutely. Uh, what is your favourite movie of all time? Uh, this is a bit left field, but um, there's only one film I've ever watched more than once and it's called The Counselor. Okay. I've not heard of that movie, but that won't stop me from watching it. I'm going to watch it this week um, well, because if, I've never if, heard of it. If you can, if you can find it. I'll I try had, my best. I had to buy it to keep it. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay, wow. That's I will definitely try and find it. But that's also very interesting. Before we go get stuck into the rest of the quickfire questions, you've, that's the only movie you've watched more than once. Is is it just you, you're not a big movie person or is it just, no, you know? I, no, I do like movies and I watch them. Um, but this one, it's got uh, Michael Fassbender, Penelope Cruz, Javier Bardem, Brad Pitt in it. And it's about greed and lawyers and drugs and it has the most gruesome um, scenes in it. But I just, I, it's just fantastic. I just love it. That's awesome. And obviously going off the back of movies, what's your favourite TV show? Oh, no, I don't, I don't think I have a favourite TV show. Um but I did start watching Maths last night. Which show, sorry? Maths? <laughs> uh, I haven't watched it yet, as in 
I watched it one season, I think it was 2017, 2018, one of those seasons. Um, back when the cheating was the scandal. Um uh, yes. Dean, I think his name was. Um oh, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, that was just... car crash telly, but you just can't believe how these people behave. Sort of oh. like it's socio so, sociology on steroids. Oh, basically. <laughs> um what's your favorite type of music? Music, oh rock and roll. Yeah. Very nice. And we've got two final questions of Quickfire before we get stuck into the final two questions of the episode. And that's uh second last Quickfire question is how do you like your steak? Rare. Oh, very nice. Um flip uh flip-flops, geez. Thongs or crocs? Oh thongs. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> crocs are, are a monstrosity, in my opinion. Um, like I get that they're comfy, but I'm not. I don't want to be wearing them. No, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. They shouldn't. The only time I think they're appropriate to be wear, worn, when geez, worn is like when you're on a boat fishing, sort of thing. But that's it. Yeah, croc, Crocs and Uggs both should stay at home. Yeah. You know, they just shouldn't exist. But we'll we'll stipulate which shouldn't should, uh, should stay at home. Absolutely. Um. Okay. Final two questions of the interview. What's three life lessons that you know now that you would tell to your younger self? Your feet deserve a break, guys. And what better way to treat them right than with a new pair of thongs? And guys, Toey Thongs has you covered. No word of an actual lie. These thongs are the comfiest pairs I've ever, ever owned. Straight out of the package, soft as heck. You know, they come in single plugger and double, double plugger. I'm currently rocking the single pluggers. Um, yeah, guys, for just $30 per solo pair, and the more you buy, the cheaper they get. And who doesn't love cheap thongs, you know? They also offer a monthly subscription to receive a pair every month for six months. So if you're a thong fiend or just need a new pair, be sure to head to toeythongs.com. Use our code LIFEINSPORT15 for 15%. Uh, three. Um, one is take advantage of every opportunity uh, and don't hide your light under a bushel. Uh, talk to people. Um, about anything and everything. Most people are happy to talk. And um, never believe in imposter syndrome. Yeah, that's a big thing that I find a lot of professional athletes definitely deal with. And if you don't mind me asking, how did you deal with that, obviously, because you just mentioned that you must have dealt with it? No, I don't think I ever had it. Um, (laughs) That's good then. Yes, and so that's that's why I raise it because it sort of pops up everywhere, and it's this great cover for um, not not um, you know not making the most of your opportunity. So all those three things sort of go go together. Yeah, um, absolutely. And I probably and I this is something that I haven't done probably as well as I I could ask people for uh, help if you need help. I mean they all sort of go together, but. Certainly the imposter syndrome thing is so debilitating um, and, you know, it's a label that should not, you shouldn't apply to yourself or let anybody else apply to you or for you um, because, as I say, it, it's just not true. Hmm. It's just you. No, no that's, that's absolutely um, very profound as well. Um, yeah, I, I don't even know what to say to that because that's just so absolute and and profound that it just no more need be said in my opinion when it comes to that um and the final question sorry go ahead oh no i was to say thanks for thanks for remarking on that because as i say i think it's it's um really unhelpful um 
And it sort of goes with all this other language around being authentic mm. and not, you know, what does that even mean? Uh, you know, be your In a world of everything that's been done before, yeah, what yeah. does that mean? So, you know, just keep, keep everything plain and simple. Um, and, uh, you know, we all worry about what people think and say about us. You know, that's just normal. Um, so it's not as you know, deep and meaningful on this, but, um, yeah, just, just at least shed that um, feeling that you're not worth it. Mm. No, I, I, I get that. The hair ad says everyone, you know, everyone's worth it. Yeah, absolutely. Everyone is. Um, and the final question, the dreaded question that when we were talking before we started recording, obviously, is what's next for Margot Foster? Well, um, as I said, I haven't got any holidays planned for this year after quite a big year last year with a couple of trips, um, so I've got to do that. But, um, no, I'll continue to do my work on my various boards and with my governance programs and consulting and, uh, yeah, just um, continue to enjoy living in Melbourne, uh, which was the city with the perfect weather. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Um, and final topic, it's got, I just thought of nothing to do with the um, Olympics or anything. Obviously, growing up in Victoria, do you have an AFL side? Uh, the Saints. Okay, I'm a Collingwood fan and I have all my teeth. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. yeah. Well, you've also got more premierships than... <laughs> ah, true, true, true. Uh, well, actually, now, as of last year, they tie now with Essendon and Carlton for the most. So fingers crossed. They can go back to back and get the, you know, most, most now. Anyway, um, that wraps up our interview slash chinwag with Margot Foster. I want to thank you very much for giving your time for the podcast. And in general, I wish you the best of luck. Oh, thanks, CJ. It's been a pleasure to have this chat. <laughs>